You are now listening to the Bayshore Community Church Podcast. Our mission is to connect to God, connect to people, and to serve the community. Thank you for joining us today and wherever you are listening. We hope that this message inspires you, encourages you, and transforms you. Our prayer is that this is just the beginning of a conversation between you and Jesus. Enjoy the message. Uh, Today we're starting a new series called uh, Dual Connection, and it's based on the book of 1 John, one of my favorite books in the New Testament. And um, one of the things we like to do at Bayshore is to teach sections of the Bible, maybe sometimes books, small books of the Bible, so that when you have your devotions, you have some frame of reference so you understand what the Bible's about. Because it's so important that the Bible is a part of your life, not just on Sunday, but when you leave and you participate through your week before you go to work and all that. So that's one of our goals. So uh, that's why we do these uh, messages like this. And today, we're going to be looking at one of my favorite books uh, in the New Testament. Man, it's way up there. Maybe my favorite, next to Romans. I just love this book. Uh, And it's written by John, we believe. You know, the same guy that wrote the Gospel of John. We got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And the Gospel of John, that same guy probably wrote this 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John. And we know that because the words he uses. He used the same words, the same ideas in 1 John that's in the Gospel. So we're meeting this guy that, you know, had his head on the breast of Jesus at the Last Supper. What an amazing guy. And uh, we're going to be talking about that today. So I want to read to you the first chapter, uh, 10 verses, and then we'll read just a section of our little uh, selection of a few other scriptures in 1 John. But here's how 1 John reads the first chapter, verses 1 through 10. That which is from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, and we have seen it and testified to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life, which is with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you may also have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. Some translations say your joy complete, our joy or your joy This is the message we have heard from him, and we declare to you, God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us of all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. Then 1 John 2, verse 26. John continues, I am writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. John 3, 7. "Dear Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. So when you look at a book in the New Testament, one thing you have to do is you have to think, first of all, who was this book written to? Who is this author writing to? And why is he writing the letter? So when I come home sometimes, Karen's on her cell phone. She's got her phone up to her ear. And I don't know if you've ever done this, but I can hear her talk and I can hear what she's saying, but I can't hear the other person on the other end of the phone. 
And so I try to guess sometimes. Usually I can tell if she's talking to her sister Barbara or she's talking to her brother Richard or she's talking to one of our boys, uh, Tim or Joe. I can usually figure it out, but sometimes I can't figure it out. And when you're reading a letter in the New Testament, what you're doing is you're hearing one side of the conversation. You're not hearing what's being said on the other side. Every book in the New Testament, or most books in the New Testament, are written with a particular purpose in mind. So we've got to kind of know why that book is being written. Now, here's an important thing to remember. Uh, there's a guy named John Walton who teaches at Wheaton University in Chicago, Illinois. John Walton says, the Bible is not written to us, it's written for us. The Bible is not written to us, it's written for us. So what does that mean? That means that we have to think, first of all, who was the Bible first written to? We're kind of like, kind of like so uh, centered on ourselves sometimes. We think, well, the Bible is just written just to us. But the fact is the Bible was written to somebody else before you read it. And you've got to understand why that book was written and who are the people originally listening to that book for you to ha have any understanding of what that book really is about. Here's another thing to know about New Testament books. Most New Testament books are written to solve a problem. There's a problem. There's some issue that's going on. There's something that has to be fixed. So if you understand what is wrong and what has to be fixed, then when you read the Bible, you read the New Testament, you read the book of 1 John, it makes sense to you because you know the problem that's going on. So most books in the New Testament are written to solve a problem. 1 Corinthians, what's the problem? Well, we got fighting, we got discord, we got sexual immorality, we got lawsuits, we got all these things that are going on in the book of 1 Corinthians. So we, we got to understand there's a problem there and Paul's writing to solve that problem. 2 Corinthians, Paul's authority is being challenged. That's the background of the story. The book of Hebrews. What about the book of Hebrews? We all talk about the book of Hebrews. You know, everybody makes a little joke about Hebrews. You know, who's supposed to make coffee? The man or the woman? Well, the Bible says Hebrews. So that, have you ever heard that silly joke? <laughs> it is so bad, I had to get it out of my system. So there it is. Hebrews. It's written to Jewish Christians. That's why it's called Hebrews. And these are Jewish Christians that are discouraged, they're being persecuted, and they've been waiting for Jesus to come, and Jesus ain't coming. So they're thinking about going back to their old religion. They're thinking about going back to Judaism. So whoever wrote Hebrews, you know, we got all these ideas, who wrote it? But he writes, or she writes, whoever it was that wrote it said, well, the new covenant is better than the old covenant. And the word and the phrase better than is used over and over again because the problem that's trying to be solved is that there is these ideas that these Jewish Christians are so discouraged they're going to go back and quit. So that's why the book is written. This week uh, we had problems with our sink at our house and, uh, you know, we had a leak under this sink and, and, and I looked under there and flashlight and I had a friend look under there and, you know, it's not my spiritual gift. I'm looking under there. I can't figure out what's wrong. You know, it's wet. I agree with you, honey. It's wet. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. And um, so we called our plumber, Jeff O'Day. Lives in Seaford, Jeff O'Day, great plumber. Called Jeff and he comes over and he figures out we need a new spigot. Do you know how much new spigots cost? A lot of money. So we had to get a new spigot and he fixed it up. And whenever you see Jeff O'Day's van in my driveway, you will know I have a problem. There's something that's wrong. He's not there to drink coffee with me. When the apostles write, they're not sending postcards to say, hang gliding, having a great time, wish you were here. 
They're writing to solve a problem. There's something wrong. So in the book of 1 John, there's a problem in the church. There's a group of people that have just left the church, which is always disheartening. When people that you love, people that you respect, leave the church. And there's these people that leave the church, and they leave the church because they're teaching a gospel. They're teaching a message that's completely different than what the apostles taught. They're teaching this message that's really not the gospel at all. And so these people that are left in this little spiritual community are, are discouraged. They're discouraged. These people that we respected are teaching these crazy ideas, and, and maybe they're right. Maybe we're wrong. Maybe they're right. What were they teaching? They were teaching that, that they lived in the Greek world. You know, Roman Empire was preceded by the Greek world. You know, Plato and Aristotle and all those people. And uh, what we have is in the Greek world, we had this idea that matter, material, anything that's made of matter is evil. That the only thing is good from Plato and all that, the only thing that's good is the soul inside of man. So matter is bad. Anything material is, is evil. Flesh is evil. And only the soul is good. So they were teaching, well, how could Jesus come in the flesh if matter is evil? If matter is, is, is evil and terrible, how could Jesus put on the flesh? He couldn't be made of flesh. He wasn't really in the flesh. He appeared to be in the flesh. It looked like he was a real person, but he really wasn't a real person. He was like Casper the ghost. So that's what they're teaching. And they're teaching that Jesus was not a real human being. And that is called deceticism. Everybody say deceticism. Now, this week that you're at a party, whatever, you can say, yeah, I've been thinking about deceticism lately, you know. Uh, they're not going to know what it means, but they're going to be impressed with you. Deceticism is a word that means to seem to appear. And the problem that the book is trying to solve is deceticism, that there is this appearance of Jesus that he's not really real. He's a phantom. He looks like a real human being, but he wasn't really made of flesh and blood. It appeared like he was with us, but he really wasn't with us. And now does it make sense when John writes how he starts in the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. We proclaim to you the word of life. John, the apostle, who was with Jesus, he said, I can tell you that I touched Jesus physically. I hugged him. I touched him. I saw him with my eyes. I saw him, and when it says he looked, I saw with understanding this is a real human being. Jesus is real. He came in the flesh. He sweated. He probably needed to use deodorant. Jesus got tired it says in the book of john that in verse uh, chapter four that he sat down by the well at the with the woman at the well because he was weary from his journey he was tired he's always sleeping you see him in the boat boats in the storm and all that and they'd go wake jesus up you look how many times they woke jesus up jesus loved to take naps and he loved to sleep in boats the apostles had a big pontoon boat and jesus is always sleeping he was a real human being. He wasn't a phantom. He wasn't pretend. He was real. 
I've been watching The uh, Chosen, Love the Chosen. I mean, I tell you what, that is one good series. We're in, chapter, we're in uh, season three now. So we had been putting off watching season three. So we've been watching season three this week. You know, Christian movies sometimes are so bad, so bad. We went to see a Christian movie the other night. It, it, was, it was just awful. It was awful. I mean, what a great message. It had a great message, but it was like the worst acting I've ever seen in my life. But The Chosen isn't like that. Chosen is really good. And there's, an, I think it's, I don't know what episode it is in, in season three, where the woman of the issue of blood is healed. She comes up in the crowd behind Jesus. She's bleeding. There's blood on the ground. And she touches the hem of Jesus' garment. And virtue goes out of Jesus. He's on his way to hear, heal Jairus' daughter or raise Jairus' daughter from the dead. And this woman is instantly healed and, you know, the conversation Jesus has with her. And she's so relieved. She takes off her bloody garments and she goes to the Sea of Galilee. She jumps in the water. She's, she's in the water. She's free. She's floating. It's a wonderful scene. I want to cry because this woman that suffered for 12 years with this issue, Jesus healed her. And then the disciples come down to the water. This is my favorite part. Disciples come down to the water and they get in the water and they're playing and they're throwing water in Jesus. He's talking to people in the crowd. He said, ah, I want to go swimming. So Jesus jumps in the water and he's swimming. He wants to go swimming. And then listen, this is amazing. Jesus and one of the disciples get on his shoulders and another disciple, I think it's James, another disciple gets on his shoulders and they have a chicken fight in the water. I'm telling you, that's amazing. That's good stuff. I think that happened. Jesus lived in the real world that you live in. He was real. He was authentic. He was made of the flesh. He was tempted. He got tired. He was real. And these people are writing, Jesus was too lofty, too lofty to be made of the flesh. It just appeared that he was true. So John writes, he said, we're writing about the one that we've seen, the one that we looked at with our senses, the ones that our hands have touched. And John says, I know Jesus is real because I hugged him. I rubbed up against him. I was with Jesus and Jesus was absolutely real. Here, what I want you to know today is you're not believing in a hope so. You're not gambling. You know, I hope it's true. I hope Jesus is real. I hope it's true. I'm going to put all my, all, my, uh, my, all my chips on big blue, hoping I'm going to win this thing. It's absolutely true. The apostles saw him. On the day of Pentecost, Jesus is, uh, Jesus is being preached by Peter on the day of Pentecost, which I love. Peter messed up and God's still using him. Peter stands up to preach with the 11, with the 11. Peter stood up to preach with the 11, the 11 apostles. Why are the 11 apostles there? Well, it wasn't for them to like cheer Peter on to say amen and amen. That's good. That's wonderful, you know, to have that. That's, but that's not why they're there. We used to have a, just a few weeks ago, we had a lady that's been, her and her family were coming. They were sitting on the front row here every week and they just moved to Texas and she was an amener. You may remember. She was amen and amen so much. I lost my place every Sunday. I didn't know what I was talking about half the time. But they're not there to say Amen. 
go get him, Peter. Why are they standing with Peter? Peter stood up with the 11. Because all of those men had seen Jesus, had touched Jesus, had walked with Jesus, had played with Jesus in the water, had seen him raised from the dead. And the night that Jesus was raised from the dead, he came through the wall and he said, look at me, touch me, because a ghost doesn't have flesh and blood. Give me something to eat. And these false teachers are teaching they're teaching that Jesus did not come in the flesh, that Jesus was not real. And when you understand that that was the problem, the book makes sense because Jesus was absolutely real. He's real. Here's the problem. Where did they get that idea from, that Jesus wasn't in the flesh? They got it from their context. They got it from the world they lived in. They got it from the Greek world that said matter is evil. In fact, this thing evolved to a point in the next century where they believed that matter was so evil that God could not have created the universe. That there was a God way up there that was pure and all these other demigods under God. And finally, there was this really, really lesser God that made the world because it had to be a really lesser God to create matter. But the Bible says, listen to this, there was nothing made that was not made through him. Jesus made everything. Jesus put the cosmos in order. Mars is where it is because of the authority of Jesus. The Bible teaches that he is above all of this. He's created all of this. So there was this problem that they were trying to solve and the idea the idea of jesus not being real and not having flesh and blood where did that come from that came from the culture that they lived in they lived in a culture that conditioned them to think that matter is evil so they brought that conditioning into their understanding of the apostles message and they tried to change what the apostles' message was based not on the apostles' authority, but based on what the world around them taught them. And so we have to remember that we are never to come to the Bible with culture, what the culture says about what is valuable, what the culture says, what is priority, what the culture says about sexuality, what the culture says about everything that you are conditioned with, that I'm conditioned with. We're conditioned with all this cultural stuff, and we want to come to the Bible, and we want to reshape the Bible based on culture, not based on the apostles' authority. I'm here to tell you, I've got lots of friends that, that don't know Jesus, and I live in the same world you live in, I live in the same world that talks about human sexuality that you live in. I live in the same world that has all these different values and all that. The tennis people I play with that aren't Christians, they, they cuss on the court and they don't even say they're sorry anymore. I'm, in, I'm with those people. And I, I love them. I love them and I fellowship with them and I pray for them and I have fun with them and I talk to them. But when it comes to what I believe... When it comes to what I believe, I come to Scripture and I set aside my culture. I set aside what I've been conditioned to believe by the world I'm in. And I come to this Bible and I say, Lord, what are you saying in this word? And I let the Lord transform my thinking. 
I don't try to make the word say something it doesn't say. I let the word convict me of my cultural mistakes that I'm raised in. And this is applicable to us today. The church universally, I'm not saying Bayshore, I'm just saying universally the modern church has rejected doctrine. It doesn't matter what we believe, we think, as long as we're sincere. And doctrine does matter. What you believe does matter. The letter here is arguing for the fact that it matters what you believe. If it didn't matter, John wouldn't have written the letter. He wrote the letter because this is dangerous. Some things that we believe are dangerous. I had a lady, when I first started, a pastor, I was just a young guy. I had a comb and everything. I had hair. And this woman came to me. She said, I'm a young pastor. She said, I just, I love those Jehovah's Witnesses. I love them. They're just, they're so sincere. And I thought she's been, I had been preaching that long. She's sitting under my preaching. I'm thinking, wow, she said, she thinks they're just like us. And uh, she said, they're so sincere. And this is the American creed. It doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. And that is a mistake. It does matter what you believe. The New Testament is always defending pure doctrine. She said, I just, I just think that they're wonderful because they're so sincere and they knock on doors. And I, I don't know if I said it or I thought it. I can't remember. It'd be more heroic if I knew I said it. I can't remember. But I'm thinking, yes, they are sincerely wrong. And you know what I think? I believe in the freedom of religion in America. I think that America should always have freedom of religion. I hope you believe that. You know, I think America should let a, uh, you know, a, a mosque build next door to us. I think we need freedom of religion in America. That is okay. That's all right. I think that's just how we're created. That's what this nation's about. But at the end of the day, let me tell you something. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter if we're all these religions are in this pluralistic society we live in. It doesn't mean that they're all right. How about Islam? They're, they're like on the heels of Christianity in terms of growth. We're still pretty good out there in front of them. But here's what Islam believes. They, they believe, here's what they believe about the crucifixion. And so here's the thing you have to remember, that these vying faiths don't all mean the same thing and some things are mutually exclusive two things can't be right at the same time if they're in opposite contradiction of each other the muslims believe that when jesus got to the cross he didn't really go on the cross but god invisibly allah took jesus up to heaven to be with allah until the end times and allah made a resemblance of jesus that died on the cross, and it looked like Jesus, but it really wasn't Jesus. It's in the Quran that he was a resemblance of Jesus. That's not what the New Testament teaches. The New Testament teaches that he was made of flesh and blood. The New Testament teaches that, that Pilate had him scourged. The New Testament teaches that he carried the cross from loss of blood, carrying the cross to Golgotha, he fell several times, so they had to get Simon from Nigeria to help carry the cross. And then they laid Jesus on the cross, and they put nails in his real hands. And they put nails in his real feet. 
and he was on the cross and he struggled to breathe because he was suffocating from the weight of his own body. And the first thing he said was, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. In that word of forgiveness, that word of mercy ripples through the ages. It ripples to you and it ripples to me that God has forgiven us because of our sins based on Jesus being on the cross, not as a phantom, not a resemblance on the cross, but Jesus was really on the cross. And that is, that's the real issue in 1 John. We've seen him. We've touched him. We've ate with him. We've heard him burp. Jesus was real, real person. So when I read 1 John and I read the words of the apostle that said, listen, I know you're hearing these crazy things about Jesus not being real and Jesus just being a phantom and Jesus not really having flesh and blood. But I want to tell you that I've seen him. He didn't say I've seen him. He said we've seen him. He's the plural there. I've seen him, Peter's seen him, James has seen him, all these apostles have seen him. The brother of Jesus, the brother of Jesus, James, James the just, you know, it says in John chapter 7 that when Jesus was ministering on the earth, that his brothers didn't even believe in him. Jude, James, who wrote two books in the Bible, didn't believe in Jesus, they didn't think he was real. And one of the first people that Jesus appeared to in his physical resurrection was his brother James. It says that in 1 Corinthians 15. And James was converted. And he's named as James the Just. And he knelt on the, his knees so much, his knees were like camel's knees. They were hard as leather. And they took him and they took him to the top of the temple. They got tired of him preaching about Jesus. He was causing trouble in Jerusalem. So they took him to the top of the temple and they threw him off the temple and they clubbed him to death. Do you think that if Jesus wasn't real, if he was a phantom, that James would be willing to go through all that? James went through all that because he knew he knew he was real. You know, think of that. Your brother. What would you have to do to convince your brother you're the son of God? What would you have to do? So they brought into their biblical understanding what the world around them was teaching them. They were conditioned by Greek culture so they come to the apostles' message and they reshape it into what the culture would accept. And I want you to know that the greatest need in our community, the greatest need in America, if I can be that broad, is for churches to quit fooling around and preach the Bible, let the Bible speak for itself, and it will revolutionize our lives and our families and our country. Can you say a big amen? I, uh, I love uh, Gary Larson, Farside. Anybody ever watch Gary Larson, Farside, the cartoons? Um, I, I got 
all his cartoons, and I don't think he does it anymore, but let's just face it, Gary Larson is a sick man. He's a sick man. He's got this crazy sense of humor. He's got one particular uh, cartoon where he shows an artist that's painting a picture of a woman. And as the artist is painting a picture of the woman, the artist happens to have a fly stuck on its spectacle. And as the artist is painting, he sees the fly through his glasses. And he projects the fly onto the portrait of the woman because he's seeing the fly on his glasses. And what we have to make sure that we aren't guilty of is letting the fly of culture influence how we see the Bible. I had an interesting conversation with a theologian a while back. I mean, friend of mine, guy I loved, and I mean, he's gone off the rails, you know, and some stuff. And I said, oh, I know this. All this stuff is uncomfortable. All this cultural stuff, it's uncomfortable. And he tried to argue with me that there's ambiguity in the Scripture about certain things. And there are certain things that there's not ambiguity about. They're, they're clear. What they say, they really mean. And, and I am humbled when I come to the Scriptures, and I, I have to be humbled as I get before the Scriptures, and I say, Lord... I know that you reveal yourself in the scriptures and I need your Holy Spirit to help me because I'm swimming against the current of how my culture teaches me I'm supposed to live. But 1 John is a book that teaches us that even though there's this cultural reinterpretation of what we should think the Bible really says, we need to get back to the apostles' witness of what the apostles said. So let me just, uh, I got like five minutes left. Let me read you a couple of scriptures about the importance of doctrine. Uh, doctrine's important. And uh, first one, Titus 1.9. Titus is one of the people that Paul mentored, Titus 1.9. He must hold, this is what Paul is instructing Titus in. He was, Titus happened to be the, uh, the apostle to the island of Cyprus, which is off, just off the coast of Israel there to the north. Here's what it says, Titus 1.9. He must, what a, what a, what a preacher, what a, a leader, spiritual leader must do. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message, the trustworthy message. Everybody say trustworthy message. Let's say it one more time, trustworthy message. The message is trustworthy. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy methods has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. To encourage others by sound doctrine. The word sound there, we don't use that word too much. That word sound, you know, something sound. It means something that's solid. He must teach, he must teach sound doctrine. The word literally means healthy doctrine. And it's the word used for when a person that's sick is prayed for and they're healed. Healthy doctor, doctrine. A healthy church is a church that has healthy doctrine. Healthy doctrine. Um, 2 Timothy 4, 2 through 4. 
Paul writes to his other protege, Timothy, preach the word, be prepared in season, out of season, correct, rebuke, encourage with great, uh, great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to miss. Now, what people believe about doctrine, they believe that doctrine is divisive, so we shouldn't talk about doctrine. Now, let me just say, there's, there's doctrines that matter and doctrines that don't matter. Like, for instance, some people have a different view about, if you've been a Christian for a while, maybe if you're, not a, uh, you're a new Christian or you're new to the church or you're not a believer yet, you know, one of the things that Christians fuss about is about the second coming of Christ, how that's going to happen. Is the Lord going to come before the tribulation period, in the middle of the tribulation period, at the end of the tribulation period? Is there not even a tribulation period? Is, uh, is, there, is, there, is there a millennium? Is there, they have argued about that for years. And I personally am a pan-millennialist. I believe it's all going to pan out the end. That's what I believe. But it really doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. That's not a deal breaker. Some people believe, they believe in predestination. Smart people believe that. There's verses in the Bible that make you think that. Predestination. Like that God predetermined who's going to be in his family. Then we have free will. Those are called Arminiasts, people that believe, you know, that it's up to you. You hear it and you make a decision. It doesn't matter. There's some people believe free will, some people believe predestination. I don't know if you know who John Wesley is. How many used to have, be a Methodist, or maybe you're still a Methodist, you're here? How many have some Methodist background? Just raise your hand. You are a Methodist and you like God Methodist in your blood. I was a Methodist, raised a Methodist. You know, Methodist, Methodism was established by John Wesley. John Wesley was a, was a free will God. Arminian believed that you choose. You make a decision. But one of his best friends was George Whitfield. George Whitfield. George Whitfield was the, uh, the main preacher in the Great Awakening in the 1730s. And George Whitfield preached his first message in, in Lewis, Delaware, before he preached in Philadelphia. Lewis, Delaware, the first, first place he ever preached in America. And he was a Calvinist. He believed that you're predestined to be saved or not be saved. And one day somebody asked uh, Whitfield, hey, you think we're going to see Wesley in heaven? Think we'll see Wesley in heaven? Whitfield said, nah, we won't see Wesley in heaven. He'll be so far up in the crowd close to Jesus that we'll never see him. That doesn't matter. But what does matter? It's what you believe about Jesus. That Jesus is the Son of God. That he was the eternal Son of God. He, was, he never was created. And that he came in flesh and blood to die for you. What does matter is that now that you're a follower of Jesus, it matters how you live. Because your life is now dedicated to him. Your life is not your own. That matters. So some things matter and some things don't matter. Um... Let me, uh, I was going to read some quotes, but I'm out of time, so. I went to a church not too long ago. Somebody invited me to go, it was a friend of mine, and I didn't want to go. I, I wanted to watch TV that night, and he's a friend, so what do you say, you know? Ah, 
oh, I'm not going to church. I'm watching TV tonight. So I went. I had to go. I had went, you know, and it was one of those exciting churches. I mean, they got tambourines, and they're jumping up and down, and they're dancing around, and I loved it. I loved to see people excited about Jesus. I mean, I loved it. It was amazing. There are people, they're just like, wow, these people are on fire. They are like, it's like, you know, it's just like a hot fire hydrant open up. Man, they are going for it. And it's great. And then the guy got up to speak. He started speaking to that excited crowd. I'm telling you what, he said like two things are like way off, way off from Scripture. And the crowd, because they were stirred by mere excitement, said, yay, yay, yay. And all of our excitement, we better put our heads on and think. Because here's what we need. We need, we need encounters with Jesus. <clears throat> we need experiences with Jesus. But we need truth as well. You got to have the airplane. You got to have one wing, excitement, passion. The other wing, you got to be thinking. You got to read the Bible. And for us to be a mature church, we have to have both those things. First John, I love it. I want you to, I want you to hear this. I'm, I'm way over. I'm, I'm stopping right here. This is it. I want you to know First John says that Jesus is real. He's as real as the chair you're sitting in. He's as tangible as the car you're going to drive home in. He's not a ghost. He's not a myth. He's a reality. I want you to raise your hands to the king who created you. I want you to say, Lord, I want more of you. I hunger for you. I thank you that my life is linked to that which is true. I may have ups and downs and sicknesses and doctor's appointments and crazy kids and conflict with people. But at the end of the day, I'm, my life is built upon a rock. And when the storm comes, I'm going to stand. The rock will it'll hold me up because you're real, Lord. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus... The Holy Spirit's moving right now. He's opening your heart to receive him right now, to change your life and receive Jesus. And you can just do that right now. Just say, Lord, I repent of my sins. I turn from my sins. I believe that you are real. I believe that you died on the cross for me. You don't need me to tell you what to say. Out of your heart right now, as your head's bowed, you reach out, you cry out to the Lord. The Bible says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. You call out to him right now, and he's going to save you right where you are. And everybody with your hands raised, let's say this, Lord Jesus, I thank you that my life is built upon a rock, that you are absolutely real. Say this, I thank you that the apostles saw you, that they touched you, that they witnessed your work in history. And God, we write the Holy Spirit right now to come into your people. As we start a new week, let our eyes be looking at Jesus, looking to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name, and everybody said amen and amen. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us on the Bayshore Podcast. I want to encourage you to take this message you just received and allow it to go deep into your soul and let Jesus do the deep work that only he can do. 
A special thanks to everyone that gives generously to Bayshore. It's because of you that this ministry is possible, creating life change all over the world. You can be a part of spreading the message around the world by going to bayshore.online and clicking give. For all things Bayshore, visit bayshore.online to find out what your next step may be. You can subscribe right here and share this podcast with your friends and family. Thank you again for listening. God bless you.